Good morning, Grace. I'm glad you're here today. Have you ever wanted to say something to someone, uh, but you knew the direct version wouldn't work? Right? There's something about this person, their life, their character, you feel really compelled to say, but you know if you go right after it, they'll miss the point. You may have started a conversation with the, I have a friend who thing, right? Um, You may, as a child, you may have heard your father say something like, let me tell you a story about when I was a kid. It's a classic dad trick, right? I'm getting pretty proficient at this one. It has nothing to do with him wanting to reminisce about a story and everything to do with about a life lesson or a virtue or a character quality they're trying to instill in their children. Guys, our ladies have some of these, okay? Let me give you a good example of that. A couple of, couple of, about a month or so ago, Lauren asked me this question. Robert, would you like me to buy you some new undershirts? I know, right? Seems pretty innocent, pretty simple. Well, really what this was, was it was her loving and yet indirect way of saying, Robert, here's the thing, man. We, we make enough money. You don't have to keep wearing those undershirts that have the tiny holes in the armpits, right? You don't have to do that. Please, please, please say yes to this so that I don't have to lose a little more respect for you as a decent human being, right? That's what she was saying, right? Well, I bet you're wondering what happened. I totally missed the point, right? I totally missed the point. I mumbled something about, well, they're just undershirts. They don't really matter that much, right? They're underneath. That's the point. And then she just bought some more and replaced them when I wasn't at home because she loves me, and that's what was best for me. Right Now, last week, if you were with us, we started a series of messages on the parables of Jesus. God in the flesh, our Savior, knows that sometimes in order to be heard, right, it might not be the best strategy to come right out and say, you're a selfish jerk who needs to change your ways. These parables were stories revealing truth. They're a way, in some ways, they were indirect communication. In his book on the parables, author Klein Snodgrass, he says it really well about this indirect communication. Learning is more than information, especially when people, already underst- when people think they already understand. People will set their defenses against direct communication and learn to conform its message to the channels of their understanding of reality. Indirect communication finds a way in a back window and confronts what one thinks is reality. Sometimes you have to know your audience well enough to know how the message is going to be heard. And Jesus was a master at this. As Matt mentioned last week, Jesus had a way of using questions and story to reveal deep and profound spiritual truths. Rather than coming in guns blazing all the time, there are so many times where Jesus says something like, let me tell you a story. Or there once was a man who had two sons. Or what do you think this person should do? It's because in those moments, hearts are more open, people are a little less threatened, and maybe, just maybe, for the first time, they might be able to hear something they've never been able to hear in a different way. It's why Jesus sometimes would end a teaching session or a parable with this phrase, let he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus using these indirect storytelling methods so that we're forced to see things from new angles and so that we can't evade the message he's trying to convey. These parables are stories, yes, but they're stories with intent. Now, there are many kinds of parables, but one of Jesus' favorite types was, uh, had these elements of reversal. We ran into one of these last week with Pastor Matt, right? The Good Samaritan. That, that combination is not supposed to go together. Good and Samaritan, no, 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 that doesn't work. The bad guys, the good guy, the old switcheroo. This is even mimicked in some of our popular, uh, most popular TV and movies and books, right? It's this element of, oh no, you, the bad guy's really the good guy? 
And we remember those moments because it's those elements of storytelling and reversal that Jesus used. They force these unexpected decisions and associations, and they can cause learning and potentially more open heart or more open ears in those who are listening. And so today's parable is is one of these reversal parables as well. And I'd love it if you followed along with your Bible. We're going to be in the uh, book of Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do. If you've got a device with a Bible on it, I'd love it if you followed along. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9 and then work our way through to verse 14. The first thing I'd like you to notice today about this parable is that the first sentence, the opening sentence of this section of Scripture, actually gives us the first clue as to what issue this parable is trying to address. This is actually one of only three times in the parables where we're given kind of the point of the parable before the parable actually happens. Scripture is like a professor giving you today the answers or the questions that are going to be on the test. And so hopefully we, we might be able to dig in deeper and figure out, is this parable for us? Do I need to listen to intently to this parable? What lesson is Jesus trying to teach? What facet of human nature is Jesus hoping to address? And in verse 9, he says it. In verse 9, it says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. There it is. That's his audience. You've got one of these two problems, or maybe both. You're confident in your own righteousness and or you look down on everyone else. And you might be asking, Robert, how do I know if we have these problems? Well, I'm glad you're here today because that's what we're here to talk about. All right. To be really honest, I think this is actually my hardest task of today. I think it was Jesus's as well, is, is convincing us that we need to hear this message. Because our natural, I think, human tendency is to hear a message or hear a parable and think of the person we want to email later to listen to this. And listen, if that happens to you at any point today in this message, then this parable is definitely for you. Okay? Now, there are two men in this story. We're going to be introduced to them in verse 10, and we see the setting of this story. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, today we're going to look at both of these characters and explore the contrast that Jesus is providing for us. And my first goal for today is that you would see how those two problems mentioned in verse 9 are illustrated in the life of the Pharisee. And my second greater goal is that you would, by the end of our time, you'd be able to understand the key to this parable. And I think what the key is and what you need to be looking for is what is the approach? What is the attitude? What is the heart posture that the Lord is going to commend today? And I believe you're here by God's grace. So let's listen and let's, let's open our ears that we would have ears to hear the message we need to hear today. So problem number one, let's get right to it. Problem number one, you're confident in your own righteousness. Let's take a look at the the Pharisee's version of this. We're introduced to our first character, the Pharisee, in verse 11, and it says this about him. The Pharisee, he stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. In this moment of communion with God in prayer, he first off leads with saying, I'm not like those other sinners. We'll get to that in just a second. And on top of that, in that last sentence, he says, hey, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Listen to how confident he is in his own righteousness. He's actually saying here, I'm going above and beyond what's being called of me. I'm doing extra credit, God. One thing you might not be aware of in the scriptures is that God's command to the people of Israel was that they would only fast once a year. It's almost like this Pharisee is saying, hey, God, just in case you didn't know, 104 times a year right here. 103 more than I'm supposed to, because I'm awesome. 
On top of that, most scholars agree that when the Pharisee says, I give a tenth of all I get, he's not just saying he's tithing on his income. He's literally saying, everything that comes into my house, I give a tenth of that away. He's a moral man, a generous man, a devout man. But his righteousness is external. It's, not about what he's, it's about what he's doing and not doing, what he's accomplishing. It's not necessarily about his character. He's telling God how he's even better than the standard God has given. This Pharisee is very confident in his own righteousness. Now, the problem is not whether or not this man was an above-average man in his devotion to God. He absolutely was. Everyone hearing this, this parable in that day would have heard, oh, wow, that's, that's, they would put him in a, a, a different category. That wasn't the problem. The problem, the Bible says, is that he trusted in it. It's what he brings to God as his worthiness. In this moment of communion with God through prayer, this is what he's going to put his trust in, his performance. Convinced maybe by his own merit, by what he does, that he's acceptable to God, especially in comparison to these other people. So are you, are you confident in your own righteousness? Do you have this problem? Maybe some diagnostic questions to help. Have you ever thought or even said out loud, look at how much good I'm doing? Have you ever thought or maybe said out loud, I serve and I give way more than other people? Has the phrase or thought maybe ever popped in your head, look at how much I'm doing for you, God? Do you keep score in your life with your doing? The Pharisee, he was demonstrating a confidence in his own righteousness. It's what he trusted in, and it's what he brings to God as he approaches him. The second problem illustrated here is he looked down on everyone else. We saw this in verse 11. That phrase, look down, actually in verse 9, it's sometimes translated, maybe translated in your version, despised or rejected. The Pharisees' version of this, right? It's very simple. Verse 11, thank you, God, that I'm not like all of these different people, the robber, the evildoer, the adulterer, or even this tax collector. I'm such a great guy. While in a moment that should be a special moment of communion with God, he can figuratively, if not perhaps even literally, point his finger at another person and say, I'm better than him. I'm not like him. In his world, there are clearly defined good guys and bad guys, and he is always in the good guy camp. And before we get too, uh, before we're too hard on this Pharisee, this is, this is probably our natural tendency as well as, as human beings, is to, um, is to put ourselves in the good guy camp and then draw the lines in such a way to make sure we stay there. I'm so much better. I don't do these things. I'm, I'm, I don't do that. I go above and beyond. I'm different. Is this a problem for you? It certainly can be for me sometimes. Who, who is that group of people or that kind of person that in your heart of hearts you find yourself saying, I'm glad I'm not like them? We discipline our children. Look at the way their kids are running rampant. I'm not sure. I don't know what they're, they're doing. God, thank you that we're not like that. I show up to work on time. What is it with these people in this flexible work schedule stuff? God, thank you that I'm not like that. Maybe it's somebody in a certain political party. Maybe it's a certain socioeconomic status. Thank you, or those rich people. They must be so greedy. Thank you, God, for making me not like that. Or those poor people. If only they would have made better choices with their life. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Oh, man, they talk so much. All they do is go on and on and on. They never stop. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Look at the way she dresses. Can you believe that? 
Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Now, it may be subtle, but the pride of putting ourselves in better categories than others will naturally lead to contempt for others. Because pride and contempt, they're a natural pair. They go together. We have a problem here. And this Pharisee, he had a problem too. So those are the two problems Jesus is trying to address in this parable and how it's illustrated in the Pharisee's prayer. Am I confident in my own righteousness? Do I have a tendency to define myself by what I do, my good deeds, and my own righteousness? And do I look down on everyone else? Do I lump people into categories, define them as good or bad, and then make sure I'm always in the good category? Now, I want to dive deeper real quick into the Pharisee's prayer before we move to the tax collector. And I want us to see, because we have to be ready for the contrast that Jesus is about to make, the role reversal that's about to happen, if we really want to understand the power of what Jesus is saying to these people that day. There's a stark contrast between these two men, this Pharisee and this tax collector. The Pharisee is a member of a very respected religious group, one of the most honored social groups around. This tax collector, he is in the most deplorable job you can have as a Jew. He's a traitor, an extortioner. This is a good man, this Pharisee. This is the kind of man we'd welcome into our, our, our communities. We'd maybe try to elect this man to some kind of public office. If we were arranging for a date for our sister, we pick the Pharisee, we don't pick the tax collector. He's a good man. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He's not an adulterer. Doesn't steal. He's not like that tax collector. He's generous. He's not an evildoer. In contrast, this tax collector is the worst of the worst. He bid for the right to tax his own people and then extorted them. But we need to remember something about Jesus. If you've read your New Testament a lot, you understand that Jesus is never merely concerned with outward actions. He is always caring about the right thing being done for the right reasons, with the right heart motivations behind that. And we get this naturally when our kids, uh, when my kids have a disagreement and one of them needs to ask for forgiveness for the other, I would almost rather them not do it, like not fake through it, then do it at all, right? If, if, if I have a choice, I want them to do it with the right heart rather than fake, it, fake their way through it. I'd rather them not do it. Jesus is saying there is a certain kind of heart posture, a certain kind of attitude, a certain kind of approach to me that I'm going to honor and commend in this parable. And so let's take a look at these two heart postures. We'll start with the Pharisee. We've already read his section. What is the heart posture, the attitude of this Pharisee? I think it's characterized by this. He exalts himself. He exalts himself. How does he do this? Well, uh, one, he's standing up. Maybe he's communicating something physically, right? Physically communicating something about, about how he sees himself. Notice the number of first-person pronouns he uses in this prayer. Five times in two sentences, he's talking about I or my. After one mention of God, God's never mentioned again. It's very clear who the major player in this prayer is. This is like the worst thank you note ever. Okay, right? When you write a thank you note, you say thank you, and then that's followed by the things the other person has done. God, I thank you, in the Pharisee's prayer, is supposed to be followed with the things God has done. Instead, he's thanking God for the things he's doing. The form there is perverted. He's not actually thanking God for something he did. He's kind of faking thanking God and then talking about how awesome he is. God, thank you that I'm so great. A soliloquy of self-congratulation. Now, what he's saying might be true. 
He might actually be very thankful to God that he's not like a tax collector. He's not like an evildoer. He's, he's been faithful to his wife. Maybe he's, he's true. It's a true statement. He's been faithful to go above and beyond in his devotion to God. But the spirit of his prayer is all wrong. There's no sense of sin or need or dependence on God. And so what may have started as a very legitimate affirmation that he has kept the covenant and the laws has detoured quickly into disdain and self-congratulation. And his heart posture is revealed. He wants to exalt himself. In contrast, we have the heart attitude, the approach, the, um, the posture of the tax collector. And we're introduced finally to him in verse 13. Here's what it says about the tax collector. But, in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus wants you to notice the difference between, and in the way these two men are addressing and approaching God. The tax collector, he's not looking around. He's not playing the comparison game because he knows he can't win that game. He's timid from a distance, not even lifting up his eyes to heaven. There's a contriteness to him. He's beating his breast, maybe understanding of his real position before God. Instead of the active voice, the, the, the tax collector sees himself very much as a passive figure in this thing, in need of something from God. And the thing he's asking for is, have mercy on me, a sinner. A simple request. And I love that word mercy there. That I, I want to point this out. that there's, there's multiple words used for mercy in your New Testament. And this one actually is a Greek word, kind of from its Hebrew origins, that literally means to cover. To cover his sins. The history of this word and the concept behind it is the same concept that they use with the Day of Atonement. He's not asking God to lower the standards or to let him off the hook. He's asking for mercy because mercy is the only thing he dares ask God for. This tax collector, his heart posture, his approach towards God, he's saying, all I know is I'm lost. I don't have time to be looking around at others. I am in need of something. There's so much going on in my relationship with God, so much he still needs to fix in me, so far I am away from becoming like Christ in all of my life that I just don't have the time to be looking around, wondering and comparing myself to other people. How I measure up is of such little importance because I just need God's mercy right now. Now this way of approaching God is uh, kind of common to the saints we find in the scriptures in the presence of God, they always seem to be more aware of their need, their need of God than their success in God. Always kind of more aware of how far they have to go than how far they, or how far they've, they've, excuse me, how far they have to go than how far they've come. A great example of this is found in the Apostle Paul's writing. Towards the end of his life, as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he can write the phrase, I am the chief or the worst of all sinners. By this time, Paul is a very dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. He's doing an awesome job planting churches all over the Mediterranean. But he understands something, that the closer you get to God, the further you realize you are away, and the more you are still in need of his mercy and grace. And so we notice the heart posture, the attitude, the approach of these two men that is in total contrast to one another. One is very proud of his accomplishments, trusting in his own righteousness, an air of superiority, look at what I've done, exalting himself. The other, crying out for mercy, not able to look around, acknowledging that there's so much wrong in him. He's got nothing to bring to God other than his sin and his need for God's mercy. 
And he's asking God to do something. And it's the contrast of these prayers that Jesus is juxtaposing together. And then he comes to a conclusion in verse 14. And before we read this conclusion, you've got to understand how much of a shock this thing Jesus is about to say would be. He says this, verse 14, I tell you that this man, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The modern reader, we, we don't quite feel the impact of this parable because those of us who have read our Bibles, we kind of already know the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys. Jesus is already always on them. They're the hypocrites. Okay, tax collectors usually receive mercy. But Jesus' original hearers, they would have thought on the contrary, that it was the pious Pharisee who deserved acceptance before God because he was a good rule follower. He did the right things. Modern readers, we, we, we have to grasp how surprising and stunning it would have been for his hearers to hear that day that the tax collector was the one who went home justified. Do you know the kinds of things this man has done? And that's the shock of this parable. Jesus is condemning the person we would commend and commending the person that we would condemn. But Jesus makes a very definitive statement in verse 14. There's only one man. There's only one heart posture. There's only one way of approaching God. Only one of these men goes home justified. Daryl Bach, in his description of this passage, says it this way. God's acceptance of the tax collector shows the kind of attitude that he responds to and honors in the one who approaches him. We see this kind of thing even with Jesus in other places in the New Testament where he says things like, hey, guys, it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes that are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. And it's not in those moments that Jesus is saying it's cool to be those things. He's not okay with extorting your neighbor, and he's not okay with using your body in a way he never designed it to be used. He tells people all the time to go and leave their life of sin. But what he is saying is there's a group of people who have a greater understanding of their spiritual need. They don't have a lot of their own righteousness to stand on. And so it's much easier for them to come to the conclusion that they have nothing to bring to God. They need something from outside themselves, and then they throw themselves on the mercy of God and receive that. Religious people, those of us who are rule followers, those of us who have some good deeds to show for us, show for ourselves. We never, sometimes we never realize that at the same level, and that's why Jesus says sometimes you're in worse spiritual shape because of that. And so what are we maybe to do in light of this parable? If you've seen yourself in this message, and I hope you have, because I've, I've kind of found myself in this message for the last 20-something years. The application, I think, is very clear. The last half of verse 14 says Jesus wraps up his parable. He explains the verdict in his teaching, and then he follows up with this statement. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Two, two applications, easy to see, maybe not always easy to do. First is don't exalt yourself. Don't exalt yourself. How do we do this? I think the most obvious way we do that is we, play, we do what the Pharisee did. We play the comparison game. We've got to stop playing that game where we compare ourselves to others. Whoever in your head popped into, God, I thank you, I'm not like them. They're way close. You're, you're more like them than you're not. In God's big picture, in his economy, in his big, big picture, you are worlds closer to that person, whoever pops in your mind, than you are to God. The thought never crossed this Pharisee's mind 
when he looked at the tax collector to say, this man is more like me than I wish, but for God's grace. And so the question is never, how am I, am I a little bit further along in my walk with God compared to other people? Or am I doing things in a better way, what God's called me to do? The question is always, how are you doing in comparison to God? And that's the right comparison. Because when we set our lives beside the life of Jesus and beside the holiness of God, the only thing we really can say is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Looking at ourselves in comparison to who God is, not through these kind of human distortions that come from comparing ourselves to others, because we'll always find a way to stack the deck in our favor. And that's usually an effort to exalt ourselves over other people. The Pharisee, he couldn't say, I'm more like that tax collector than I wish, than I'm not. We're the same man. One of the ways the Lord tugged at my heart this week and, and kind of just even convicted me uh, this week in preparation, and I, and I, wanna, I only want to share it in hopes that it might give you an illustration of how subtle this can be in our hearts. For me, one of the things I care about, I think by God's good grace, is that I really do want to be a, a good husband and father. But I find myself in this area being confident in my own righteousness, look at how good I'm doing, and looking down on everyone else. I can look at the landscape of, of abs- or the atmosphere of absent fathers and aloof fathers and husbands who don't serve their families and their wives well, and I can say, look at how good I'm doing. Look at how good I'm doing. And it gets even more nefarious when I, when I look to others to recognize that and hope they'll notice. Or even have this awful thought in the back of my mind, wow, my wife and my kids are really lucky to have me, especially in comparison to some of the bozos they could have. My heart is wicked in that moment. What am I, what am I looking for? I'm looking to be validated by comparing myself to other people, right? I'm looking down on everyone else, and I'm being confident in my own righteousness And that's the very problems Jesus came to address in this parable. I'm exalting myself. I don't know why it is that I can't look at the landscape of manhood and why in that moment I look at myself with pride and with contempt for others. I don't know why my eyes aren't more filled with tears, my heart more broken for what I see in this world. And why in that moment I'm not just praising the mess out of God's grace in my life that that I've got something going on here. I'm missing something. I'm missing the right heart posture. And I have to remind myself often, very often, of the truths of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where where Paul says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And so when you feel those things beginning to creep inside of you, that exalting yourself heart attitude, when you feel that boasting, that comparison game coming up, that game where you need to put others in categories so that you can feel better about yourself, when you minimize your stuff and say, oh, it's not that big a deal, but you maximize other people's stuff and say they're awful, when you feel that stuff coming up inside of you, you crush it. You wrestle that to the ground. You remind yourself once again the spiritual predicament that the Lord plucked you out of and then you cry out for his mercy because you just demonstrated once again how far and how much you still need his mercy. And why, why do we need to fight this? Why do we need to be vigilant over this? Because if you don't, the promise from our Savior himself is that if you keep exalting yourself, you will be humbled. Will be. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. 
And if you've walked with God long enough, you know that a God-humbly moment, they're the hardest kind. But our God loves us. And if he loves us, he's going to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that process is going to humble those who want to exalt themselves. So we have the first application. Stop exalting yourself. Second one, pretty simple too. Start humbling yourself. Start humbling yourself. Last half of verse 14, after he says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility really simply is seeing yourself for who you really are. And I think it comes best from seeing yourself next to the face of God, his holy love and loving holiness, and seeing yourselves in so much need of forgiveness and grace. You aren't depending on your own righteousness like this Pharisee who thought he had a lot of good things to stand on, but instead you're taking on the approach, the posture of this tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5 where he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. There's a big difference between pride and humility in our approach to God. Pride will have you preaching your merit to God. Humility will plead for compassion from God. Pride will have us trying to negotiate with God as some kind of equal Humility will approach him in desperate need. Pride will separate, uh, it separates us by putting others down and putting them to categories. Humility with God will have us identifying with others, knowing we're very much in the same boat. Now, I, I have great hope for this Pharisee. I have to because I am one. I know that the tendencies in my life have me leaning this way, and I'm very capable of demonstrating the two problems that Jesus came to address in this very parable. And my hope and my prayer is that a posture, an approach to God that starts with, God, thank you that I'm not like them, and look at all the good stuff I'm doing, would be transformed, would turn into something more beautiful, something like this, where a Pharisee like me might be able to pray, God, thank you for your grace. I'm an extortioner by heart, just like this, this tax collector. He and I's hearts are both so far from you. Thank you for your grace. I'm an unjust man by my nature, but God, you, you put truth in my inner being. Thank you for your grace. My friend over here, I want to pray for him. I want him to come to know the grace that you've so lavished on me. God, continue to have mercy on me, a sinner. That's my hope for a Pharisee's prayer. A transformed Pharisee's prayer. Men and women of grace, this parable is for us. I know it's for me. My natural bent is to want to be confident in my own righteousness. Look at what I'm doing. And then look down on everyone else. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Now, last week, Matt kind of gave us a charge, if you were here, uh, through the story of the Good Samaritan, to kind of see, see the needs around us, really see what's going on around us, and how to be even a minister in the context of our church this summer and throughout kind of the next year. And I want to say yes and amen to those things, but if I could go just another step further, what if while we were doing that, what if while we were being ministers and seeing the needs around us, what if the ethos of this place what if the atmosphere of our hallways and corridors and grounds were people with the right heart posture? What if the reputation this place had was that it was full of great sinners crying out for great mercy? What an attractive thing to the world around us that would be. Because those who might be coming to this place 
They're looking for something. They know they lack something. They know in their heart of hearts something's not quite right. They showed up at a church for a reason. And we are supposed to be a people pointing them to how much mercy we've been shown. We're not a people looking around, sizing others up in comparison. We aren't the first people who are pointing out all the things that are wrong with others because we are too engrossed with how much Jesus still needs to fix in us. But when we come to this place, we're a group of people crying out for God's mercy on us and then celebrating together that wonderful reality that he has indeed shown us so much undeserved mercy and grace through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the heart posture I'm after. That's the heart posture that Jesus commends to us today through this parable. Friends, we can can do this. We need to want this. Jesus is incredibly clear in his parable. If you're confident in your own righteousness and you look down on others, you have a chance today to hear really hear, with ears to hear, your Savior say, it starts with the correct heart posture. Stop exalting yourself. Start humbling yourself. And this this is not easy to do, and so we're even going to need God's grace to help us transform our hearts in that that endeavor as well. And so I'm going to pray for us towards that end right now. Let's pray. Thank you, God. God, I'm in need, in great need of your mercy, in great need to cover my sins. Father, it is so tempting to look around at others and subtly and yet horribly exalt myself as if there's anything worthy of exalting in me. God, you alone are the one who is worthy of the praise and honor for what you've done in my life and what you've done in the lives of the men and women in this room. And God, we, we pray, we do pray, God, that we would be the kinds of men and women here at Grace who would come to have a heart posture, an attitude, an approach to you that is relying on you. It's not, it's not puffing ourselves up, but it's a, it's a heart posture, God, completely dependent on your mercy because that's the approach you commend. And that's who walks away justified. Those are the kind of men and women we hope to be, God. And so we we ask for your Holy Spirit's help in this endeavor because we are very aware of how much help we need. And we ask for this help in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.